Turn to Psalm 85 in your copy of the Bible, if you would. Psalm 85. Everything I say will be drawn from this glorious passage of Scripture this morning. I'm going to read through Psalm 85, and in honor of the Word and in honor of Christ who gave it, would you stand as I read Psalm 85? Follow along as I read aloud Holy Scripture in your hearing. Lord, you were favorable in your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other, Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. You may be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know the first great awakening happened in the 1730s, 1740s in this country when we were colonies. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield great and mighty works of the Spirit blew through New England and all through the eastern seaboard. You know it didn't begin in the United Colonies or the colonies. It began in Scotland. <laughs> Pastors were gathering together under Ralph Erskine and Ebenezer Erskine and other uh, Scottish pastors, and they were crying out for God to pour himself forth in revival power. They had a high view of God. They knew it was only going to come by the blowing of the Holy Spirit. These Scottish pastors would, would pray in Edinburgh and other communities around Scotland, and they asked for God to come in revival power, and they repented of sin. They were unified sweetly together. Their doctrine was sound. They were plodding steadily and favorably with the preaching of the Word. They were calling for repentance, and they were calling for the, the obedience to the Word, and they were steady and, and strong in their ministry, and they had a, a good structure of the understanding of the local church. They were Presbyterian, and they understood uh, much of the Scriptures, and they were carrying it out with zeal and with passion, and God poured out His Holy Spirit on the Scottish pastors in the 1720s. And revival broke out, and they were thankful, and they saw many in fact, we, we can read today even many Scottish pastors who were, who were, who, whose works were born out of the revival of the 1720s in Scotland. And then letters were, were sent and, and visits and travels occurred to where that revival spread. It metastasized in a wonderful way over to the colonies, especially through people like Jonathan Edwards and then eventually George Whitfield and other names that you might know. But then it stopped in Scotland. It ended. It cut off you know what cut it off in Scotland? The pastors got together and they said, we're seeing revival take on messy and, and uh, upheaval and incoherent forms in some of our churches. And we need to stop that. We need to bring an end to that. Why? Because true revival will always affirm our understanding of the local church. It killed revival. Not maybe because the Presbyterian understanding of the local church is so wrong, but because like, like a man coming up to the ark of the presence of God as it looks like it's going to tip while it's being carried across the Jordan River and he puts his hand out to touch it and he dies, they put their hand out to touch the holy things of God. And revival died. When revival comes, it causes upheaval. It causes stirrings, tectonic plates of, of spiritual uh, habit and tradition tend to bump up against each other, and relationships get uh, unsettled. Maybe even marriages go through challenges, friendships go through challenges, church structures go through challenges, communities and, and political structures go through challenges. And that causes people to be uneasy and, and fearful and even anxious about revival. 
And it might well up in your heart. You might have seen so many goofy things happen under the name of revival that you hear about a revival conference and you say, boy, I hope they're not asking for all that silliness to happen. I went to what a, a so-called revival at a college one time because I was a pastor of some of the college <clears throat> students. And for three hours in a chapel service, kids were coming up confessing things in a room of four or five hundred people that they should have confessed privately to the person that they violated. Not in a room of 400 people where everybody's going, mm, I shouldn't be doing this. <clears throat> the pastoral care and leadership that had to happen after that revival was massive because it wasn't any revival at all. Revival isn't all of a sudden the celebration of sin. Revival is the inbreaking of God himself upon his people. So uncomfortable and so awkward and upheaving is revival that many of us fear revival. In fact, if you ask the question, if revival is so wonderful as we see in the scriptures that it is, and we hear throughout the history of the Christian church, revival is so wonderful, why does it happen so rarely? Well, one answer is the sovereignty of God blows wherever he wills. God is the giver of revival, and we'll see from Psalm 85 in a moment that God himself is revival. He blows where he wills. So revival ultimately is his gift of himself to the church, and he gives and withholds under his wise and sovereign perfect wisdom. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and we say, blessed be the name of the Lord for what you give and what you take away. But another reason why revival is so rare is because deep down inside, many of us don't want it. We don't want revival. Because deep down inside of us, there's the old man that we're wrestling with, the sin that needs to be mortified and put to death. The old, the old Brent Nelson, there's part of me that says, not only do I not want revival, I don't want God. I read a tweet recently from, a, from someone I follow on Twitter, Kevin DeYoung. He said, we have to admit seemingly how many in the church want God's promises without God's presence. That's a tweetable sentence, and it's true. We want God's promises without God's presence. God's presence is scary and terrifying and it's exposing of our sin. But more than that, it exposes all kinds of deep, dark, systematic problems in the life of the church and in the life of the culture and in the life of our country and on the earth. I want you so badly to see with me now what true revival is according to Psalm 85 and how that causes the fear of the Lord to well up in your heart, and then that expresses itself in genuine biblical repentance. There are two words that come together to form the idea of revival in the Bible. If you take a concordance from English and you look up revive or reviving or revival, you won't see much in the Bible. There's maybe ten examples, maybe twelve, if you stretch it. But that doesn't mean the idea of God reviving his church isn't stopped through the Bible. It's everywhere. You'll see that in just a moment. The two Hebrew words behind revival that come together to form our idea of revival are one, shuv, it means to turn. Shuv, it means to turn away. Often it's applied to us. God's people, turn from your sin and back to God. That's the most common use of that word, shuv. It means to turn. It shows up six or eight times right here in Psalm 85. But a more important word and one always paired with shuv to mean revival, is hayah. It's the Hebrew word that means life, to be. God, Yahweh, the covenant husband of Israel, takes his name from the word to be, Yahweh, from hayah. It's what's known as the tetragrammaton, the four words, or the four letters, yod, hey, vav, hey, the, the name of God, his personal covenantal name. You don't take that name to your lips as a Hebrew or an Israelite. It's too precious. It's too holy. We say Jehovah or Yahweh. It's not the word for creating uh, natural life. There's another word for that, creating birds and, and flowers. That's not the, the creating of life. It's the creating of spiritual life, living before the face of God. Yahweh is then the personal name for God when he's given life to his people. So now, insights abound. Take those two ideas together, turning and life. 
And that's then the prayer for revive us. It implies God already gave us life. He already made us his own. He already loved us. He already took us from death to life. And he caused us to know him and to love him. And then we said, forget you, God. I'm bored with you. I'm uninterested in you. I'm more attracted to sin. So now I'm in the need of reviving back to him again. How dare I come to God and say, you loved me once. You revived me once. You gave me life. What I need most is for you to do it all again. How dare I come to God that way? But that's exactly Psalm 85. That's the prayer. The only place in the Bible where that shuv and hayah word come together is right here in Psalm 85. Several other places, they show up separately, and they're translated revive, rightly so. But here, look at verse 6. Will you not revive us, hayah, again? Shuv, will you not turn and revive us again? This is the psalm that defines revival in the whole Bible. Now, what do I draw from that? What do you draw from the fact that God's name is the word for revival? You don't have to use your English concordance to look up revive or reviving in the Bible. You won't find it. That's, that's like finding a little bit of gold on the top of the ground. You need to dig deep. You need to realize every time God uses his name, every time you see Lord in all capital letters, you're seeing Hayah. And God wants to do that all the time. So how close is revival to his very character? How close is revival to God's heart? He's saying, church, people of God, you needed me or you wouldn't live. And I made you live. And then you spurned it. And you need me again. That's revival. You know what? You need me all the time or you're going to die. Revival is God giving God to his people. Revival is God giving himself again to us. Even though we have no right to ask him. You see, revival by its very definition is the mercy of God being shown to his people over and over again. Because we keep drifting away from him. We keep spurning the life that he's given of himself to us over and over again. We can go deeper. This glorious picture of revival in Psalm 85 takes us deeper. You see the word turn. The word shuv or turn shows up down further when it's talking about our turning. That we turn not back to folly in verse 8. But let them not shuv or turn back to folly. So often the translators think the main turning is the people turning. We can understand that. You can understand the people of Israel turning back. Or, or we, the church of Jesus Christ, turning. Or you can understand your role when we get to repentance of you turning away from sin and turning back to God. That's what repentance is. But that's not the way turn functions in Psalm 85. The word shuv, or turn, shows up in verse 4, but it also shows up in verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath, and you turned from your hot anger. The best translation of verse 4, it says, restore us again in the ESV, but in Young's literal translation, it just says, turn. It's the psalmist, son of Korah, commanding in prayer, Almighty God, to turn toward him, away from his anger and turn toward him. Do you have a picture of God who changes his mind toward you? Revival does not begin with our repentance. Revival does not begin with our prayer. Revival doesn't begin with our conferences. It doesn't begin with our seeing our need. It doesn't begin with our being totally fed up with American culture or the or American evangelicalism or the history of the church revival doesn't begin in the church Revival doesn't begin anywhere outside of the sovereign mysterious Merciful inclination of a holy God to give love to those who deserve his wrath God turns inside God is a turning where he has wrath rightly and justly for those who have spurned his life. And he, because of his great love and because of the mystery of his overwhelming kindness and hesed love, as the Hebrew word goes, he decides mysteriously to show mercy to a people who deserve no mercy. 
because they spurned previous mercy. So where does revival come from? It comes from the very heart of God. This is broaching the ineffable. We are beyond our ability to talk about this. We are fools to step beyond this idea. How's this for a Saturday morning beginning discussion? <laughs> this is beyond what anyone has the capacity to understand. How can you imagine a God who says, I'm going to change my mind? I mean, you're a cat's whisker away from blasphemy there. Because it's evil to think of God as changing his mind because he learned something, or he lacked something, or he made a better decision because he made a mistake before. That's blasphemy. You are, you are a cat's whisker away from thinking that. For Samuel 15, 29 says, the glory of Israel does not regret or change his mind like a man. Don't talk about God like he's you. When he changes his mind toward Brent Nelson and gives him life one more time, it's because of something that's happening inside him that he decided and preordained and chose to do before the foundation of the world. That doesn't make it any easier to understand. <laughs> but it's still true. <clears throat> Revival is the very heart of God. If you then are indifferent toward revival, as I confess I have been often, you're indifferent toward God. If you think revival is a way to do an end run around regular normal obedience in your life, you violate God's purposes for revival. I know so many people who are praying for revival so that they don't have to obey in the normal, healthy, biblical way. Churches, entire denominations are built on that idea. It's evil. God will never be used against himself to violate his own word. This beautiful biblical picture of revival rises out of Psalm 85, not just because of the words that are used there, but I want to show you it in the structure. There are four sections to the psalm. Did you notice them as I, as I was reading? Section number one, verses one through three. Lord, you were favorable. You used to revive us. You did it before. That's one through three. Section four through six. So do it again. Revive us again. On the confidence that you did it once before, revive us again. Third section, verses seven through nine. It will give you glory. If you revive us again, you'll get glory. That's a good biblical way to argue with God. God, I want you to get glory in my life, so be kind to me one more time and just watch the way I praise you and watch the way other people give you glory for the way you were kind to an undeserving person like me. But then the last section, verses 10 through 13, this is the fourth section, there's this glorious foundational rationale, cause, for why the psalmist is so bold to pray that God would turn and revive him again. I'll read it once more, but this time I want you to hear me read it as God's dialogue with himself. This is God's description of himself. This is how he is, and from his character and his identity, he offers reviving life. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet in God. Righteousness and peace kiss each other inside God. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. We already saw righteousness in verse 10, so righteousness is now the theme of this section. Yes, the Lord, Yahweh, Hayah, his name is Revival. You'd honor God by calling him Revival. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness, there it is again, will go before him and make his footsteps away. So what's the foundational idea for why the psalmist thinks he can go to God and ask once again for reviving grace, God is righteous. Inside himself, he's righteous. What does that mean? He will uphold the worth of his own value. He doesn't have a standard of righteous above and beyond himself. He is going to uphold and, and, and care for and preserve and vindicate the worth and righteousness of his own name and his own value. That's him being righteous. It still doesn't fully answer the question. 
How can sinful people like us, how can sinful people like Israel, how can a sinful prayer like the son of Korah receive from a holy God, not wrath that they deserve, but mercy and justice and reviving once again, again and again and again, habitually turning from God and yet coming to God in prayer, saying, Lord, let us turn from our folly and receive from you your life again. The answer of this psalm is, it'll come to you, because God did it before. It'll bring him glory, and it's his righteous character to do it. But the question remains unanswered, and it remains unanswered for centuries until Christ Jesus is born into the world, and he comes as the righteousness of God, and he, according to Romans 3, allows God to pour out all the wrath that Brett Nelson deserves and the people of Israel deserve and the church of Jesus Christ deserves and all the elect deserve. Pour it out on Christ so that it's drained out fully and he absorbs it and becomes our propitiation for it in order that God could remain just in not spurning his wrath and wiping it away under the rug of the universe, but he expends it fully on Christ so that God is both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. Amen. Now the answer is in Christ. So it's no wonder that whenever you look in the New Testament at Christ, what does he bring to us? Over and over and over, what does Christ purchase for us? Life. Hayah. Revival. Every time you see the word life in the New Testament, think revival. It's all over the New Testament. I'm crucified with Christ, yet the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For me to live is Christ, Paul says in Philippians. John says, if you've got the Son, you've got life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Jesus came into the world to give us eternal life. Life is everywhere in the New Testament. Don't even bother looking it up in your concordance. It just won't have enough Room to list all the examples of life in the New Testament. That's revival. That's God saying, I'm going to give you me. Because I'm what you need. I'm Hayah. I'm life. I want to tell you, brothers, I've spent most of my 54 years thinking revival was a weird, odd, peculiar uh, wart on the life of the church. And that it was good, rarely, but almost never, and that I wasn't praying very often for revival. This study has caused me to realize that revival is embedded right in the very nature of God's character, and that if I'm indifferent to revival, I'm indifferent to Him. It also means that revival is not something odd and peculiar that we add on to the normal life of the church, but it's the very normal workings of all the things that produce life all the time. It's the preaching of the word for salvation and repentance. It's prayer. It's the seeking of God to love and worship and honor him. It's the desire for sound doctrine to be poured into every man, woman, and child who will pause and listen and receive the life-giving truth of God. It's the normal life of the church. That's what revival is. Revival is not odd and peculiar and an appendix on the life of the church, like sprouting a third arm. Revival is instead the normal, healthy working of your life with Christ. Revival is the way we ought to be and exist in the life of the church. That was new and life-giving and breathtaking for me to see. But revival is still very, very messy, and it causes upheaval. When spiritual blessing is poured out, when his life is poured out upon a church, it can break apart the structures. It can divide people who thought they were so close in friendships. It can make families uncomfortable. Remember when Jesus said that his, his coming would divide families. It would bring a sword. Revival brings the sword of upheaval and of fear. So how does the fear of the Lord well up in the life of a church or even a person when God is willing to turn? How does the fear of the Lord well up and cause us to uh, uh, respond to revival in an appropriate way? I want to share with you a picture of the fear of the Lord as I gathered it from a um, book called uh, Pentecostal Outpourings in the Reformed Tradition. If you want a book recommendation, I can highly recommend to you Pentecostal Outpourings in the Revival Tradition. It has the idea of looking at 
the pentecostal outpourings throughout the history of the world or the history of america specifically also europe as a demonstration of god's pentecostal spirit but under the preaching of sound doctrine you see i prayed earlier and i believe with all my heart revival isn't poured out in an apostate church churches should be doing the normal steady work of preaching sound doctrine and applying it at every level of their lives raising up leaders praying and preaching for repentance in the heart of the people and doing the steady regular work such that like tending to the altar we are ready for the fire of god to come down whenever he's willing to grant it revival then has the effect of causing us to return to obedience not flee obedience it has the effect of causing us to return to the word and to the hard work of study and learning and reading and thinking and teaching and fellowshipping with one another and building community and engaging in evangelism and missions and all the healthy work of the church but realizing that the moment the fire falls upon the altar that we've tended to all of that can be destroyed whatever whatever we've built up can be destroyed because god comes in all his power and glory and he can lay claim and lay flat and raise to the ground anything that we have erected or constructed there's a beautiful picture of a story of a uh, a girl nine-year-old girl back in 1800 in Vermont who came to Christ during a small revival that was happening in that community. It's in this book, Pentecostal Outpourings. It's written by Tom Nettles. Her pastor, Pastor Haynes, was listening to her tell her testimony, and after uh, she gave her testimony at a Sunday evening, she appealed to become a member of the church, but he said she's a nine-year-old girl, and he was really suspicious as to whether she understood this love of God and, and the talk about his justice and his holiness. So he has an interview with her after the church service is over, and he is trying to discern whether she really understands what she was talking about in the, in the service when she gave her testimony. He says to this young girl questions like, you know God is holy and just, and you know that anybody who violates his law in one way will be condemned unless they appeal to Christ for forgiveness. Is God too strict? And she says, no, God is not too strict. He's just right. He's holy and just. And then he asks her a question like, well, is his law too strict? Or should we alter his law? I mean, his law is, is filled with his holiness and with his justice. And when we apply his law, we see our lives as as uh, violating his law, we, we, we neglect to do the good and we often fail and commit the sin against the good. And she says, no, his law is not too strict. His law does not need to be altered. She says, I'm the one that needs to be altered. She's nine years old. And then he says again, but aren't you afraid of this God? I mean, this God could destroy you and this world and in, into atoms in a flash, he says. Aren't you afraid of this God? This little girl says, I used to be afraid of this God, but now I love him. <laughs> then he asks her a, la a final question he says young lady if you were to go to heaven tonight and, and you were to enjoy the pearly walls and the golden streets and, and all the saints and all your relatives and friends were there and you were to sing the songs of joy with all your family members but God said I must go on to a further heaven a million miles away what would you say she says sir it would be no heaven to me at all he invited her to become a member of the church. She remained faithful to Christ all the days of her life, according to the biography that Nettles was quoting. That's the fear of the Lord. Turn to Exodus 20. I want to show you the fear of the Lord in Scripture, and then we'll return to Psalm 85 to finish our time. Turn to Exodus 20. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments, as you know. This is the picture of God visiting the Israelite people as he has rescued them out of Egypt. He's now giving them the Ten Commandments, and they're at Mount Sinai in an, all the glory of God's presence. The smoke and the flash of lightning and the, the rumbling and sound of thunder is terrifying to people of Israel. But they come to God with an unholy fear, a fear very unlike this nine-year-old girl or maybe like what she had before she was converted. So Moses tells them that this visitation of Yahweh, the God of all life, is meant to remove one kind of fear and add in another. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
So Moses is saying there's a kind of fear you must be rid of. The kind of fear that fears your destruction and it fears suffering and it fears God smashing you down. It's a guilt-ridden fear. Be done with that fear. God came in revival glory to give you his law in order that you wouldn't have that kind of fear, but to test you and put a new kind of fear inside of you, the kind of fear that keeps you from sinning. Moses is saying, I want you to have the kind of fear that makes you fear sinning more than fear suffering. I want you to have the kind of fear that makes you fear being really a fool rather than just being seen as a fool. I want you to have the kind of fear that makes you fear falling away from God way more than you fear falling down before God. Do you see the difference in the fear? It's glorious to say, God, let the fear of you rise up in me. I don't want to sin against you. I'd rather suffer than sin against you. Just like this nine-year-old girl. That's what you want. That's what you preach for. That's what you pray for. That's what you raise your kids for. That's how you, how you lead your wife. That's how you influence your friends. That's how you relate to your enemies. That's how you pray for your goofball politicians. That the fear of the Lord would crush them in their private moments. That's how you pray for idiot politicians that are everywhere. It's the kind of fear I want welling up inside of me. Exodus 20, 20 kind of fear. The kind of fear that makes me think about sin and it causes me to tremble just to think about going near the temptation to sin. I'd rather suffer under God's hand than sin against God's heart. That's the response, back to Psalm 85, from the presence of God in his mysterious turning where he wills and chooses to turn and he comes and causes the fear of the Lord to well up inside his people and they say how then do I live how do I function in this fear of the Lord how do I minister knowing that this holy God in the mysterious counsels of his will chose to change his mind toward me and turn from his wrath such that in boldness I can come one more time, one more time, one more time to him and say, Lord, please have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sin. Cause me to turn back to you. You turn to me, I'll turn to you. Oh, I hope if you remember anything out of our talk this morning, you think about revival as this turning of God that enables my turning. My turning is hidden inside his turning. My turning is hidden inside his turning. I love that idea. I love thinking about that image of my salvation and true revival. Then what does it look like? It looks like repentance. You notice that in verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Let them not turn back to folly. So now your turning is enabled by God's turning. You don't have the ability to repent unless God repented is it okay for me to use that word? It's really scary to talk that way about God, isn't it? I just get so close to the cliff of heresy. You don't get to repent unless God repents. But your repentance is not his repentance. But his repentance is real. It's just he willed it from before the foundation of the world. And you have it enabled in your life. You can't repent unless God first repents toward you. I'm, I'm way out on a willow limb here. But it's true. I believe it's true. It's right here in Psalm 85. Your repentance is your rightful response when you are overwhelmed by the kindness of God towards you. Because Romans 4, 2, 4 says, is it not the kindness of the Lord meant to lead us to repentance? So you notice and you see the overwhelming kindness of God toward you. You want your wife to repent? You want your kids to repent? You want people under your ministries to repent? Lavish them with the kindness of God. Lavish upon them the kindness of God. And true repentance will be enabled. And in no other way will true repentance arise. Your repentance is to say, it is such foolishness for me to go back to the same ridiculous habits 
that waste time and turn me into a smaller shadowy version of the man I know God makes me to be and wants me to be. I refuse to keep going back to that same habit. I will take whatever sword I must take and I will sever that appendage. I will cut my arm off. I will cut out my eye. I will remove a part of my spiritual body rather than continue in that foolishness of sin. I turn. There's a humility. There's a brokenness. There's a shame briefly involved with repentance. It's scary. But if you, Exodus 20, 20, fear sinning more than you fear suffering, if you fear being a fool more than just looking like a fool, if you fear falling away from God more than you fear falling down before God, then repentance looks like the most beautiful thing in the world. The Spirit of God comes by sovereign power and He takes a, a hot little poker out of the fires of God's holiness and He touches and stings right there where you need to be stung. And He cauterizes this part of your heart that has been inflamed with sin and he touches it and a wisp of smoke goes up and you say God I am so sorry for the way I've been thinking about that person or the words I was using or the cavalier way that I joke or the things I've been watching or the way I've been avoiding that situation or the way I've been holding on to that that idea and trying to baptize it with all that religious conversation but it's unholy it's an idol touching it with the fire of your conviction from your holy fire and it's hissing and that hissing is healing I love the picture of repentance it is what revival looks like someone may say to me you're not talking about normal Christian life you're talking about revival that is revival and I'd say yes it's also normal Christian life Please join me in bringing together this biblical image of the fear of the Lord and repentance before the cross of Christ and the blood he bore for the washing away of our sins, the blood he shed for the washing away of our sins. Please, please marry that picture together with me and the very glory of God, his name, Yahweh, because that's what revival looks like. And if it feels like we're describing revival, not just the normal, regular life, my answer is yes and yes. Because what I want is the kind of revival that is so genuine that it does cause fear of the Lord to well up in my heart. And it does cause true repentance in my life. And I do turn away from my sin. And my wife and everybody else who knows me can say, you're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I can see it. That's what I want. I don't want to be a phony. I don't want to just feel better when I read a good theological book or go to a good theological conference. Or listen to a good theological song or sermon. I want to be a real Christian. In private and in public. Because of God's turning his sovereign heart toward me. I'm going to save time for questions. I just want to end by saying this. Do you find, brothers, welling up in your heart because of conferences like this and thinking about psalms like this and thinking about these ideas, do you find welling up in your heart a steady, a desire for a steady flow of genuine conversions in your church? Newborns in Christ, constantly. Union Lake Baptist, Lakes Church, whatever church you're a part of, don't you just long for preaching to result in genuine conversions? Catechism, teaching, outreach efforts, all the proclamations of the word to result in genuine conversions. Don't you long for baptisms that are just brimming with people boasting in Jesus, like this nine-year-old girl? Don't you long for a visible, measurable sanctification in the body of Christ, where leaders and people are growing more like Christ all the time? Don't you long for reconciliation among marriages and friends under the power of the Holy Spirit because of this repentance? Don't you long for sound doctrine to be not just declared but delighted in? Don't you long for all the spiritual gifts to flourish in the local church for the service of love? Don't you long for no one to be drifting, dividing, or dallying in their heavenly journey? Don't you long for bold prophetic overtures of truth spoken into this God-defying culture? Don't you long for new leaders of every kind to be mentored and commissioned on a regular basis? Don't you long for new ministry endeavors, churches, schools, and hospitals to be established regularly in the community? Don't you long for salty, purifying effects on the entire political sphere? And don't you long for the nations of the world welcoming missionary efforts of gospel preaching and getting saved? 
so that the fulfillment of the whole purpose of the entire Bible and God's salvation history plan would come to pass, that every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people would gather around the Lamb and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is going to celebrate and be reminded of his bloody death on our, ha on our behalf for eternity. So that we could live. So that you could pray Psalm 85 for yourself and say, Make me alive again. Turn toward me, O God, so that I can turn toward you. We pray. Father, would you cause these meanderings on Psalm 85, these ruminations to be lit aflame by your Spirit in the hearts of these men and burn, be consumed so that they're forgotten, but that they warm and give light to the dear souls of these brothers gathered in this room this morning. Thank you so much for their engagement and their listening and their thinking and their meditation on Psalm 85 with me. Thanks now even for the way you'll guide our, our discussion about these things. Please make it edifying and fruitful and pleasing to you and, and life-giving to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Your turn. What's your thoughts, questions, observations, reactions? Yeah, remind me of your name. Uh, Kevin. Kevin, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I had a question about... Yeah. The statement that God doesn't bring a Bible to apostate churches. Yes. I think that's an important reminder and an important statement to make. I'm just trying to reconcile it with the message of Hosea uh, mm -hmm. to the northern tribes and the specific statement in chapter 14 where he says that he will heal their apostasies. Yeah. Um, the way I understand it, wiser, wiser Old Testament theologians like Bruce Waltke and others have dealt with that, and I've read some of their writing, and it's very, very helpful on Hosea and, and how God has been so merciful to come to churches or to come to the people of Israel when, in fact, they were committing apostasy. They were engaging in individual apostasies or various kinds of apostasies. My argument is that God doesn't come to an apostate church is a broad categorical statement that basically I'm getting at the idea that it's our task to keep on working on sound doctrine and to keep on obeying and to keep on living the Christian life and not expect God to come and use revival to fix what we already know we're doing wrong. Some false doctrine and, and false lives that flow from it. That text refers to, in my understanding, individual sins and strayings from the Lord that God was willing very mercifully to give them the ability to repent of, to turn from, and to be brought back. That's, that's my understanding. Now, my argument from Psalm 85 is that it all begins with God anyway. So what would I say to an apostate church? What if an apostate church asked me to come and, and speak with them about their church life? I've actually had opportunities that are pretty similar to that. I've been invited to talk to churches. I have an appointment back in Duluth with a church uh, that probably will be coming up in the next couple of weeks where some of the leaders have said they want to talk with me. These leaders have had sound doctrine preached to them for about 26 years under the, a gifted ministry. He, the man resigned a year ago. They've decided to move in a decidedly non-gospel-oriented direction. I think it's a step toward massive mistake, if not apostasy. So they're asking me to come in and sit with the elders and talk with them about what I think about that. So how am I going to speak to a possibly apostate church? I would say, turn back, repent. Remember uh, what made you a church in the first place. Turn back. And if God grants them Psalm 85 mercy from his turning toward them, then he can draw them back. So, would that be revival? Well, it wouldn't be revival in the Psalm 85 sense, but it would be a mercy for me to come and tell them, and an even greater mercy for them to say, yeah, he's probably got a point, let's do that, if that's what their response is. Ultimately, whenever... God mercifully draws someone back from the brink of their destruction. Think of Peter. Peter was making apostate moves in denying Christ. He had seen so much of Christ, and three times he denied the Lord. And yet, God draws Peter back, and he gives Peter a deep, deep weeping. A weeping that was a turning. And Peter return back. And then the Lord, when he rose, said, tell Peter to meet me in Galilee. I'm, I'm drawing him back to myself. I'm not writing him off. I want to meet him in Galilee. What a kind Lord we serve. So, that's my groping, Kevin, with that tough question. I, I, think, it's, I think it's hard to, it's hard to uh, be definitive and dogmatic because it, it seems like God has to show profound mercy 
to people who are on their way to making a shipwreck of faith. So, in, in what you're saying, then, this is really a critique of what's happened in church history in the United States. Right. With the uh, ecumenical evangelism. Totally a critique of that. Uniting with liberals and Catholics oh. to, to seek a revival. And I hate that. I, and I think the Bible hates that. Because it's the exact opposite of what you see in the Bible. What you see in Scripture is, God says, I'm giving you me. I'm not giving you you. That lie, that's a false counterfeit revival. Because that's saying revival comes from you people getting together. I have, I have no interest in participating in the revival where all the different false doctrines get together or all the different pastors get together and they say, we're not going to talk about doctrine because doctrine divides. We're going to just get together and be us. And I'm saying, you're a counterfeit revival when you do that. Because revival is God giving you himself. And that means get your noses in the Bible and talk about the way he really is. Think about him for who he is. Step back and look at this glorious high peak mountain of God's character that, that thrusts itself up into the clouds of ineffability that we can't even see the top of God's glory and character, yet we can see the crags and the cuts and the edges. And the closer we focus in high definition on him theologically, the more we're in awe of the glory of the mountain of his character and of his being, of his glory, of his name. So... I totally agree with you, Kevin. I think it's a massive critique on the, on the golden calf of unity getting together and having no theological discussions whatsoever so that we don't divide anybody. Then whatever they come up with is, is not revival, but the putrid stink of death. Whatever they come up with stinks like death. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, Brent, uh, my name is Mike Lee. Mike, yeah, you and I talked yesterday. Yeah, yeah. we talked yesterday. First, um, may God give you the courage and strength to stand strong when you do have that meeting. Yeah, so, <laughs> pray for me. It's coming up in a couple um, weeks. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to ask the question because sure. I'm probably the least learned in the room. But um, in verse 3, um, when the psalmist says, yeah. God, you have turned from yeah, your yeah. wrath. And then in verse 4, he says, God, please turn away from your anger right. upon me. Uh, I, I get the feeling, and I'm probably wrong, in that in God's love for me, yet he simply tolerates me. In my sin, I, I'm, I'm probably wrong in that. How do those two square? You have turned, but please turn. Yeah, yeah. No, that's not an unlearned question. That's a great question. <laughs> it's more than a four-minute question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I know this dear brother right here probably can answer that question better than I can. Um, so I should introduce you guys. This is Brian Matthews, dear brother, wise theologian. Um, my understanding is that when God turns away from his wrath, that he is not resentful about that. My understanding is that he's not um, ticked off the way I am when I have to change my mind. He's not ashamed of himself the way I am when I have to change my mind. He's not questioning himself or doubting himself. That he chose to re move his wrath from his people from before the foundation of the world intentionally and delightfully. I believe with all my heart that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the foundation of the world had a covenant of redemption where they decided that this would all occur and that he would create a scenario with a tree in the garden and Adam and Eve and kings and Israelites and uh, Detroiters and stars and everything so that he could say, look to my son on whom your guilt is laid. And when he pays the cost of my wrath, it's fully uh, absorbed onto him so that I can hold my wrath in justice and in vengeance. And for those who do not trust in my son, I will pour out my justice and my wrath and my vengeance on them forever and the smoke of their torment will go up before me forever and ever. It won't stop. And I will delight in my justice being satisfied. Just as I delight in my justice being satisfied in your life through the smell of my son's blood. And I delight in both, God says. I am not resentful. I am not tolerant. I am totally and sovereignly in control 
of the way the universe works out. That's my understanding. What would you add to that, Brian? Amen. <laughs> I, I don't know if that answered your question, Mike, because it's a, it's a great question. I've, I've thought about that before, too. Is, is God just tolerating? Is he just biding his time? Does he shake his head? Does he go, whenever I, did, whenever I sin? He planned it. He ordained it. Other thoughts, questions? We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah, what's your name? Uh, Rich. Rich, Rich yeah. Ford. What's your thought? Um, well, what I was going to say about... Uh, this idea, and I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but it says in verse 3, you turn from your hot anger. Yes. And then in verse 4, uh, put away your indignation. Um, what what boldness to pray. Put away your indignation, God. <laughs> so in verse 1 and 3, though, uh, he's saying that uh, you turn from your, your hot anger, but he says in verse 2, you covered all their sin. Yes. In verse 1, you were favorable to your land. But yes. the difference, so he turned from his anger then right. to, to those. All right. But now in verse 4, it changes, right? Yep. Restore us. Right. Yeah. Again. Yep. And so I think that's why there can be that difference. He's not saying, you're, you turned your anger from us, and now turn your anger away from us. It's, he, he has done it for others, and now please do it for us. Yeah, good observation, Rich. I think that's right on. Those, those, those direct objects are di different at that moment. So what you did for them, do for us, two different people. Interestingly enough, when the people of Israel think of themselves as individuals, they, they do talk separately. Like Ezekiel 18 says, a father is not guilty for his son's sin, and the son is not guilty for his father's sin. But also, there's a unity among the Israelite people where Daniel can go into exile and pray, forgive us our sin, and then he lists all the sins of, that he never committed, but all the people of Israel committed to get them into exile. So there's this beautiful picture where Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of Daniel's righteousness, is hanging on the cross asking forgiveness for sins he never commits. He becomes sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And there's something beautiful about a man who prays in the privacy of his own devotions for the sins of his own family, even though he didn't commit them. Mm -hmm. Even though he'd been telling them for years, don't do it. He still goes to God and says, God, please forgive us for what they did. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful.